Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. Uh, this is one of those passages that's easy to miss because we're so familiar with it. That's a little, some memory I have from a VBS when I was probably, I don't know, six years old, eight years old. I don't even know. And we're kind of like, oh, we know that story, perhaps because it's a familiar story. I want to dig into that a little bit more from a little bit of a different angle than, than sometimes we, we come at it with. We have in our, our, our basement, we're getting water in one side, only one spot only on the wall because our silver maple in the back back of our yard, the, the, the roots of a silver maple tend to come up toward the, the, the top of the ground, and it's pushed the front of our patio up, and it's changed the grade back toward the house. So any, any water that falls on the patio or any snow that melts on the patio, it goes right back toward the house, down the, down the basement wall, and there's water in the house. So we looked at several solutions, finally decided just to contract with Indiana Fa- Foundation, I can't remember the name of the group now, um, some foundation service. And so they came out, they looked at it, they measured it, they quoted us, we said, okay, that's fine. We scheduled the day. So the, the guy shows up at 8.30 in the morning a couple weeks ago, I'm here to fix the patio. That's what he's there to do. But what would happen if I had answered the door and said, hey, Mr. Indiana Foundation Service Man, would you fertilize our yard? He would say, no, I'm here to fix the patio. Well, could you, uh, could you clean my garage? He would say, I could clean your garage, but that's not why I'm here. I'm here to fix the patio. How about, Mr. Foundation Man, would you do my taxes? He might say, well, your taxes are already late, but uh, I, maybe I could do them, but that's not why I'm here. I am here. I could do lots of things in your house, Mr. Williams, but I am here for the express purpose of fixing your foundation or your patio to keep that water from going in your basement. That's my mission. That's clearly why I'm here. And though I could do a bunch of other things, that's not why I've come. Rarely do we get a statement that clear in the Gospels from Jesus about why he has come for something. But we do have that in this passage. It's in verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. He could do a lot of things, but he says here, this is why I'm here, to seek and save the lost. And many commentators have rightly said, I think this is the main theme of the Gospel of Luke. It was all heading this direction. I've come to seek and save the lost. And so there's some, in some ways, we could have made that the big idea of each sermon we've preached in this entire book. But we left it more implicit. Jesus makes it explicit here. He says, I have come for a purpose, to seek and save the lost. And so I want to look at the, the story of Zacchaeus in light of that. That's what Jesus is like. What we see here and in the rest of the Gospels is a seeking heart of Christ that moves toward what he calls here lostness with salvation power, with with grace, with life-giving salvation reality into lostness because Jesus has a seeking heart toward that. And that, I want to say, you know, we want to hasten to say that is both for those who do not yet know him, he seeks them in their lostness, whatever the, the makeup of that lostness is, opens eyes, brings salvation power into life, and renews them. And also, that's his disposition, that's his dynamic toward whatever other lostness is in our life still. And we've just confessed our sin, right? There's plenty still. We might think of lostness as the way it's not supposed to be. The brokenness, the anti-shalom of 
the world. It is in this world, but it is in this world too, our internal world. And Jesus' nature is to move toward that with life-giving power, salvation-like power. And one of the things we've kept mentioning all the way through the Gospel of Luke is that the Jesus in the Gospels, his heart, his disposition toward his people is no different than the Jesus today exalted in heaven. The difference is he took on some limitation by taking on human form when he came in the incarnation, and now he's unlimited, though still in human form, unlimited in his state of exaltation, but his heart is the same. So if you want to say, what's Jesus like today? All we have to do is read the Gospels. That's where he reveals what he's like for his people. And today we see his heart is this. He comes to seek and save the lost. He comes to those who don't know him and those who do know him, who need him to press into their life more. And, in fact, he doesn't actually say, it doesn't say Jesus came to seek and save the lost. It says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And we saw a couple weeks ago, we tend to think of that phrase, son of man, and just hear, Bible word, you know, moving fast. What does that mean? No, it's just a phrase. It's not just a phrase. (laughs) It's from Daniel 7, this picture of this heavenly, this person who looks like a person coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days, receiving from the Ancient of Days his ruling authority for eternity. So Jesus is saying, in effect, the cosmic reason that I am seated and ruling is to seek and save the lost. That's why I'm here. I can do lots of other things, but this is what I do. This is my disposition. This is what I do. So let's, I want to get at that by looking at three things, the lostness of Zacchaeus, the seeking nature of Jesus, and what salvation looks like when it comes home. Lostness seeking salvation. Remember, loss is just being not the way it ought to be. Not the way it ought to be. Verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So what do we know about Zacchaeus here that paints a picture of why Jesus would say he's lost? First of all, he's a tax collector. He's a tax collector. So I read recently that about 80% of IRS agents, when asked what they do, they respond, I work for the government. In fact, there is a person in our church, I'm not going to tell you who it is because you may never talk to her again, whose mother is an IRS agent. And when I found that out, I started going back, have I ever said anything that might give a hint that I am, you know, I'm not, as far as I know, I, we have people do our taxes for us. I think we're doing it right. But, like, I began to think, oh, no, this IRS agent, I'm scared, right? Um, it was even worse than that. It was even worse than that. Uh, they were, because Zacchaeus was a group of people that would have, are employed by the Roman government to tax other Jewish people. So it's a Jewish man employed by the Roman government to tax other Jewish people uh, for a government that they hate. The Roman government's oppressive. The Jews resent them being there. And now these other Jewish men tax them to give to the Roman government. And so they were despised because they used the power of the state against their own countrymen. And then also they usually lined their pockets with extra because Rome would look the other way and let them charge extra as long as they got what they wanted to get from uh, the Jewish people. So... They were not, uh, they were a despised group of people, although they did pretty well financially. 
I also understand this, that uh, it's an inherited position often. So that means Zacchaeus' dad was probably also a tax collector. So Zacchaeus would have grown up in a household also that was despised by the common person. He was a chief tax collector. That is the only time that phrase is used in the Bible. Uh, Tax collectors are never presented in a good light, A. B, Zacchaeus is the chief one. So, like, whatever the bad they are, he's the baddest of them, right? He's the worst of the bad ones. Um, like a mafia boss, only he just only has control over, like, taxing you. Uh, he was rich. He was rich. Now, that, sometimes being wealthy in the Bible is a sign of God's blessing. God's not, the Lord's not against being wealthy. He's against wealth that is gained in an ill-gotten manner, or wealth that chokes out your soul, or wealth that, uh, and with which you're not generous. But, you know, wealth from industry and being hardworking is great. That's a sign of God's blessing. That's not why Zacchaeus was wealthy. (laughs) He was wealthy because he was really good at being bad. He was good at defrauding people and taking a lot of money as a tax collector. Uh, And using the power of the state to line his pockets at the expense of his own people. So he was a tax collector he was the chief tax collector. It's like he was over all the other tax collectors, and he was wealthy. So he was despised by everybody. So before we start feeling, oh, poor Zacchaeus, he was too short, just understand, he was a, not a good dude. Right? Zacchaeus was not liked, and for good reason. And he happened to be short. Which actually, that doesn't say short. It says literally it would be translated micro-man. He was a micro-man. Why, why would Luke include that? Why would Luke include that? Well, Luke is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He understands Gentile thinking. He understands Roman thinking. Since Aristotle, four centuries before that, or more, perhaps longer before that, the Greek philosopher which came into Roman philosophy, there is a, a school of thought called physiognomy. Physiognomy, from the Greek word, uh, the nature of something and interpreting the, from the nature of something. Physiognomy basically held that you could interpret the essence or the character of a person from their external features. So the Bible's not endorsing this. It's just describing it, okay? The Bible describes a lot of things it doesn't endorse, right? It inhabits a particular culture. It's not saying, yes, we believe this is the case. It's just like people around believed that because Zacchaeus was uh, unusually small, he was also unusually small of soul. That's what they would have believed. That he was, because he had some external deformity, he had some internal deformity. Because he was a micro-man, he had a micro-soul. He was barely human. That was, that's, that's why Luke is pulling that thread and picking up and showing us. That's why he says it. Uh, so, an almost not human person. That's what Zacchaeus is seen as. And he's despised and looked down in on. Regularly dehumanized, as you may know. People are, who are often dehumanized by others sometimes find it very easy to dehumanize others. And this is what Zacchaeus does. He defrauds people of their money. Why? Because he can and because he wants to and because nobody can stop him. In fact, the Roman government, the most powerful military in the history of history to that point, says, I want you to do it. So here's what we have to see. I'm trying to paint the bigger picture here. Zacchaeus is both 
a victim and a victimizer. He's a victim and a perpetrator. Likely growing up in a home whose father was despised and mocked everywhere. Everywhere. And his family name would have been held in utter disgust. That's a hard way to grow up. Oh, and Zacchaeus is an intentional perpetrator of sin. Probably justifying his defrauding of people because they're treating him with a despising in a despising manner. Like, oh, this, this is what you deserve for treating me this way. And of course, the more he defrauds, the more they despise. And it's just like cycle of chaos and evil. Here's all I want us to see here. This lostness, this darkness, this evil sin is murky. It's rarely clean and clear. It's murky. It's murky. It's an, sort of an icky combination of, yes, individual, specific sin. Yes, Zacchaeus is a sinner. He steals, he defrauds, and what's on top of that? Justifiable bad behavior. Hey, they kind of deserve it because they despise me. Psychological pressure, emotional breakdown, a broken system where tax collection like that happens at all, and the Romans look the other way, and you, you can't get another job because nobody likes you, and this is your family business, so I guess this. He's stuck in a system, he's a victim, and he's a victimizer. Sin is messy. And think about it in our own life. Yes, it's a, a fruit of our sin is X, but you know, the, the, the context of it, it makes sense in the moment. There's a lot of pressure on us, all this kind of stuff. So I'm not trying to say Zacchaeus isn't guilty. He's guilty of sin, but it's also, there's a whole context of brokenness in his life, like there is in yours and mine. And into that whole mess of lostness, Jesus enters in, moves into that, right? So by way of application, we simply begin to ask, what are things in my life that are not the way they ought to be? Even if they're never going to change. Like I think this, that place of that brokenness of this world, the way sin is cut across our life in this world, that's a place where Christ enters in to meet us. Even if those things don't change, right? This is where Jesus meets us. You know, there are things that perhaps your parents said to you in anger that can never be unsaid. Perhaps there are things you've said to your own kids in anger that can never be unsaid. They can be forgiven, yes. There can be reconciliation. But in our flesh, we want to bring those things back up. And it it has a grip on us sometimes. There are things we've done in our own past, words we've said. Sexual sin, perhaps. Uh, Fits of anger and rage and uh, just unnecessary words that are real. And they can't become non-historical now. Even me mentioned those. Some of some things have come up in your head. You're like, oh, yes, that's a real feature of my history. Forgiveness is real. Shame covering is real. Guilt removal is real. But those are historical realities that sometimes bind us. Maybe we ask, you know, where's my behavior toward other people? Just harsh, or condemning, or critical unloving. This is not the way it ought to be. It's not what we're designed for. There are things that weigh us down in this world that aren't going to change. I'm not trying to be pessimistic here, but I want to be realistic with us, right? In our lifetime, third world poverty will not be ended unless Christ returns. 
I'm trying, I'm just trying to be realistic here. Partiality will remain. Just trying to be realistic. Abortion will remain. May not remain in every country, but it will remain. War is real and will be real. And the reality of that is, like, that weighs us down. That is weighty and sort of just, like, destructive internally to some of us. Maybe you're like the lost coin or the lost sheep or the lost son in Luke 15. You've wandered off. You're wayward. You're, you're way, you may be right here right now, externally, you're not wayward. You come to church, you look good, you keep it all together, but you know internally you are gone. You are wayward. You've mailed in with the Lord a long time ago, but because it's, it's easy to keep up appearances, you do it. I know the temptation to that. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus is no stranger to that, and he's no stranger to us in that. Why? He came to seek and save the lost. It's who he is. So we may be confident of that reality. Jesus came to move into those areas of lostness in our life and toward those who are lost and apart from him in this life. Scripture teaches that, I mean, Jesus knows what it is to live in a broken world in Hebrews 4, and that he has been tempted in every way as we are. Maybe not with every specific sin, right? But he knows the, the temptation of those idols that are below those sins. The idol to security, to comfort, to power, to control, to approval, whatever. And um, so, okay, all, all I want to do is show that, that Luke is identifying several features of lostness here. Not just, oh, he stole some money. He did. It's a whole pastiche of things. And, and lostness comes in many forms. Okay, so Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but he can't. Perhaps he wants to see Jesus because, if you remember, a couple years before that, out in the wilderness, before the ministry of Jesus kicks off, John the Baptist is baptizing, and it's right outside of Jericho. And who comes to him in Luke chapter 3? Tax collectors. Some of Zacchaeus' employees would have been baptized by John the Baptist. Maybe even Zacchaeus himself, right? John the Baptist wasn't doing the baptism of Jesus, right? Um, that's a whole other confusion of other confusion about baptism. <laughs> um, John the Baptist is baptizing, announcing this new way of reform in Israel. And some tax collector said, yeah, we want to be part of that. Maybe Zacchaeus did. We don't know. He wants to see Jesus. Why won't the crowd let the short guy in front? Because they don't like him, I guess. He's despised, so he climbs up in a tree. What grown man would climb up in a tree in that culture? None. It's breaking uh, cultural convention. He doesn't care because he lives a life that's broken cultural convention. He lives as an outsider. He's done okay financially, but nobody likes him. He's an outsider. And Jesus seeks him. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead. Zacchaeus climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. That stay at the house, it, it was, 
what's mixed into all that would be, I'm staying with you, I'm eating with you, I'm going to lodge with you. It's a very intimate reality. But the the phrasing here is very special. He says, I must stay at your house. Uh, Theologians will point out that in Luke's writings in Luke and Acts, Luke wrote the book of Acts also, he occasionally captures Jesus or the Holy Spirit or Paul, the God through Paul saying, I must do something. It's called the divine imperative by theologians, saying if this is central to who I am and my mission, I must do this. Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. This is the last uh, narrative event that happens before Jesus goes into Jerusalem. He says, I have to stay at your house. Why? Because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, and you, friend, are a lost one. I must do this. I must move toward the lostness of my sheep. And there's kind of some mystery in the way Jesus does this. In Luke 15, those three parables of lostness. Sometimes the sheep is lost and he goes to a far country. Sometimes the son is lost and he doesn't. He just has his heart toward him. He waits until he comes home. Sometimes money is lost and he searches the whole house. Here he invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. He doesn't really invite him. He says, I'm coming to your house. Um, I don't think the point is to explain how Jesus seeks. It's just that he does. This is the nature of Christ. Do you know that for yourself? So right now, in the dark places in your own life, the lostness that remains in us, whether that's sin or deep, deep psychological challenges from sin against us, the weight of brokenness of this world, the disposition of the exalted king of the universe is to say, I want to move towards you. I'm seeking you. I'm seeking you. His heart is drawn toward you. He's compassionate towards you in your sin and in your need. Taylor pointed that out a couple weeks ago. So good. Jesus is magnetized toward us in our sin. It doesn't repel him. He came to heal. And this is often scandalous. The crowds grumble because Jesus is going to the home of a sinner, the most despised one in the city, often thought of as worse than a Gentile. They can't see that the grace precedes transformation. The crowd is upset because Zacchaeus is bad. <laughs> and you know what? They're right. He's just externally bad. <laughs> they can see his badness. Like he's not good enough for Jesus to come in. But that's just everything backwards. Grace comes first, then change happens. Who's the least likely person to be transformed by Jesus in this world? There isn't one. Right? The grace of Jesus transforms anyone, but the grace comes in first. We tend to just look around and say, well, who's, who's already partially transformed? That person is likely for Jesus. That's not how the gospel works. It's never worked like that. And even for God's people, Revelation 3.20, do you know this passage? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And anyone who hears my voice and opens a door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That is an invitation to the church, to those who are already God's covenant people. Jesus is saying, hey guys, I'm knocking. Yes, you're mine. I want in. 
I want to come in and be with you and eat with you. That's what he's saying. I want greater access. Salvation comes home to Zacchaeus. Verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, as we said. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Okay, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus uh, sort of barging into Zacchaeus' life is a good picture of what real grace is. Meaning this, Jesus comes home. He comes all the way in. The restoring grace of Jesus is to have him all the way in, in the nooks and the crannies and the crevices and the details. And what happens? I know this happens in my life. I'm guessing it happens in yours. You say, yes, that's what I want. And then we live our life for a while, and we look up and say, wow, we've got these whole places of life where functionally Jesus hasn't come home. He hasn't come in. I have this, maybe something else has happened in our life. Maybe we've gone lackadaisical in something. I don't know. But there's areas in our life where he's just not in the details. What does he say with respect to that? Open the door. Open the door. I want to come in. And so look at, the, look at the order of change when, when, Zac, when Zacchaeus declares his generosity. And by the way, this could be a whole sermon on giving. That's often how this Zacchaeus is preached. But I want to capture that through line of the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What happens, Zacchaeus declares, I'm going to be generous. And Jesus says, ha, that's because salvation has come to this house. Not like now, well, you'll be saved. But salvation has come in, generosity is exploding out. Right, Grace has come in, change is moving out. There's an old Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers who 200 years ago wrote a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You don't have to read the sermon if you don't want. Just remember the title. It's good enough, right? But it's held on for 200 years because Chalmers makes this simple observation that people just usually miss what Jesus does. We tend to think Jesus comes to us and says, you've got all these things in your life. I want you to lower your desire for these things. That's not what he does. He comes in and says, I'm going to put something better in your life. I'm going to give you a new desire, a new affection, a new love, a new joy. And the effect of that in your life, by the way, that's me, is to root out those other things and subvert them. The the effort isn't ours. You're saying, I've got to lower my desire in this and this and this. It's saying, oh, I want to see Jesus. That's what happens to Zacchaeus. Uh, Maybe it was his security that he really had to hold on to, or maybe he loved power and getting over on people. But now he's got Jesus. He's like, I want to be generous. I want to be generous. Uh, What is the means, what's the the pathway of Jesus dealing with this loss in us? Of this, the effects of living in a a sin-scarred world? Psychological pressure? The unreconciled relationships? The sin patterns that seem so hard to defeat? Um, we say this, Jesus, I open the door to you to come into this area. And I actually want you all the way in. Now, let me ask you a question. He says in in Revelation 3.20, Behold, if you hear my voice 
and open the door, I will come in. What do you think it is to hear the voice of Jesus? It's not like you're going to hear his voice like you hear my voice. What does that mean? It means, Christian, you have a desire for that. This is the work of the Holy Spirit of the living God. The speaking voice of Jesus through the Spirit in our desire. So even if I've been speaking here, or maybe you were reading the Bible this week and say, you know what? I had this inclination that I want Christ to come farther in. Do you know what that is? That is the voice of God. And this ain't mystic, charismatic stuff. This is just Bible. This is what the speaking voice of God is. Our desires in line with the gospel. Right? So if you desire that, know what's happening right now. You're like, yes, I want Christ farther into my life. I want this area, of, it seems out of control. I want to have victory here. I have this unreconciled relationship. Jesus, come farther in. I'm really stuck on this thing that happened in the past. Jesus, come farther in. That's the voice of God. That is the voice of the living God. See the effects in Zacchaeus' life? He's lavish. He's like, I want to give half my possessions to the poor. Whoa, okay. And maybe that's because Jesus deals right at the point of our brokenness with grace. If I've defrauded anyone, I pay them back four times over. So that was uh, beyond what the law required. If you steal from someone, you had to pay them back 120% the Old Testament law. He's like, I'll quadruple it. Right? He's not looking. He kept good records probably. He's a tax guy, so he knows who it is. Um, uh, He's not looking for the minimum. He's like, probably, how much can I live on? What's the minimum I can live on? Okay, great, I'll give everything else away. Why? A new affection has come into his life. Zacchaeus was an unlikely convert. All of his his life is wrapped up in something that's getting unwrapped right in that moment. His job has to change. The people he taxes, they're not going to start liking him. The guys he used to hang out with, the tax collectors, now he's out of their group too. So Jesus restores him to community in verse 9. Today salvation has come to this house. He also is the son of Abraham. All you thinking that tax collectors are worse than Gentiles? No, this one is the son of Abraham. He's, Jesus is restoring him to a community of faithful people. The church is made up. If you look around here. Look around this room. You can come here in the first service. Look around that room. This is a church. This is a place made up of people who are lost without Jesus. Lost without Jesus. Some of it's more evident. Some of it's less evident. All of it's real. And Jesus restores uh, Zacchaeus into a community just like that. Just like this. The Jesus we see here in Luke 19 is no different than the Jesus who reigns and rules today. Now, the cynic, I know, could say, well, look, that only proves he found one person out of the whole crowd. (laughs) The one who who understands that Jesus is unlimited right now says, actually, he sees one person even in a crowd. He sees you. He sees you. He sees me. His nature is to move toward us. And he will not turn away. Because he's already gone into the heart of darkness for us. That's what the cross is, friends. Jesus has taken the effects of that lostness on his shoulders, and he experienced the depth of the death of it. He's not going to turn away now. So we can invite him in. We can respond to that knocking. One of the ways we 
respond to that on a weekly basis in the New City community is through communion. This is a standing picture uh, by which Jesus ministers to us the reality that he pursues us. He gives himself for us. He gave himself for us. He gives himself for us. He will give himself for us. If you're in Christ, I want to open this table to you. I want to invite you to take communion with us. Now, I would say just if, um, if you're still figuring out what you think about Jesus, just as, the, as we come by to pass it, just say, not, not today. Uh, if you are, need to go be reconciled with somebody first or at least make an attempt, go do that and then come back to the table next week. If you have an area in your life where you are caught in sin and don't care, <laughs> you're, not, you're not even dealing with it. I'm not saying you're not, not struggling. If you're struggling, that's cool. If you're not struggling, like I don't even care, Scripture warn you, don't take. It deadens your conscience. But if you're a struggling sinner who knows lostness and loves being found by Jesus, the table is open for you. We're going to pass this out. Um, we're, doing, you know, we're, we're morphing our communion a little bit. We're actually going to pass the elements out to you. So we'll come around with trays. Uh, just all you have to remember is this, though, it's white grape juice and red wine. Forgot to say that at the first service. So many kids were taking the wine. Um, white grape juice and red wine makes it memorable if a kid takes wine, I suppose, for them. Um, and then we'll pass out the bread, too. Hold both of them, and we'll come back together, and we will uh, take uh, the bread and the cup together. I'm going to pray and invite the worship team to come forward, and then we'll go to the table. Lord Jesus, uh, help us be more open and desirous of your pressing in. Help us be, one, hopeful of your pursuit of people in our life that we just think, well, that's not likely. Oh, may we repent of that attitude, trusting your power to open blind eyes and renew dead hearts. And may we desire for more of your depth in our own life, honest about where we need you and freely asking for your help. In Christ's name. Amen. If you're serving with me, I invite you to meet me over here.